Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eye's Rock Pop Rambles. This is the weekly podcast from the band Bug Eye. I'm Angela. And I am Kerry. There is always like some weird delay we've introduced. It's like you're asleep. Well, it's because I never know when it's coming. And then like my brain has to catch up and then I get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You weren't paying attention. Anyway, this is the weekly podcast. It's It's got facts. It's got fiction. It's It's a ramble. It's kind of bits of information about music that you may or may not know. It's certainly not the Musos podcast. We don't go deep and heavy into anything because that would be too much research. Uh, But we also, we play new music each week and we're starting to have guests on the show. And tonight, listeners, we have a very, 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 very special guest that we're quite excited about. Introducing the one, the only comedian by trade... Jo Caulfield. And she's absolutely fabulous. And when she popped up on our Twitter feed um, saying that she she liked her music, I almost did a little happy wee. It's the greatest compliment a comedian ever can have is that you <laughs> oh, get a little well. happy wee out of someone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased. Um, yeah, so jo, Jo's joining us on the show. She's got some tracks she's going to talk about. Um, and also she's got a little bit of an interesting, I say a little bit of an interesting background. She's got a very interesting background, but something that you may not know. And we've got a common theme running in this show today where I'm going to talk about, um, well, we're going to celebrate female drummers because we've got Kerry, obviously from Bug Eye, who's a drummer. There's loads of female drummers out there. And the surprise little tidbit that you might not know was Joe. once upon a time, used to play drums. I did. Yeah, and it surfaced recently again because a friend of mine from a band, it was a rockabilly band, uh, he put, he, I had no idea that it was videoed. It was a gig in a pub in Wandsworth. I remember it was quite a weird mix of people there, like old-fashioned, like Ted's, like Teddy Boys. This was like in the 80s. Um, but he had a video of it, and I was so blown away, and he just put it up on Facebook, and I was like, oh, my God, because it was, I'd sort of forgotten that I did it in a way, or I think I'd forgotten that I... I knew that I had been a drummer, but I thought, I wonder, did I, could I really drum? And then when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, I'm in time. And I was singing, I was doing the backing vocals. And, <laughs> you know, so I was, it was like looking at another person. I was honest to God going, oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> that, that is, that is, that is really cool because, you know, there weren't a hell of a lot. I mean, obviously we know of loads of female drummers now, but it's not, you know, it is quite a rare thing. So how did, how, how did this happen? I was, uh, I was very into rockabilly scene. Like when I came to London, I, so, I suppose I met a few rockabillies and I liked the look and then I just started going around with people and that sort of became a scene I was very into but it was also it was also a crossover like it used to be a really good club which I believe is still going because I did go there about two years ago Gaz's Rock and Blues okay um John Mayle Blues Breakers his son Mm-hmm. Um, he ran it and I think he's still running it because he was there when I went there about two years ago and that used to be like rockabilly but also blues and ska um, it was all that sort of scene but I was in a club one night and <laughs> this is so such a bad advert and I'm sorry Kerry to say this because <laughs> it makes us sound very unserious 
and a woman came up to me about my age and she went, oh, I really, really like your blouse, your shirt. And I had like an original 50s shirt and I had a really cool like atomic um, little like sun uh, moons on it and rockets. And she went, oh, do you want to be in a band? And I went, oh, I would like to. And, uh, and she went to play any instrument. I said, no, I'm really not musical at all. And so she went, oh, well, then you could play the drums. <laughs> Because she she did play like she'd learned classical violin, so she played slap bass and was sort of learning that. And her boyfriend, he was a really good guitarist and mouth organ player, and he taught me to play drums. So it was like he had to teach me as quickly as possible, in a way. So it was like just a stand-up snare, and then and then I met these other people, and I was in a band with them. And he was again, he was a really good guitarist, and was a girl on sax. And um, so we did go out as an all-girl band, except that the guitarist was a man. <laughs> I've been, I've been, I've been in one of those. In fact, I've been in a few of those. <laughs> um, but we sort of did gigs, and we did um, busking as well, because you could just do, I just do, take a stand-up snare, and that was really cool because people, were, they, you'd have a double bass, and we all dressed up, you know, so we looked yeah. interesting and in rockabilly stuff. So you'd get quite a lot of money, I think, just by the look of you. No, yeah. you could just play the same tune over and over again. But I, it was quite basic. Like I only ever had, I had, I had two drums in that. I had a snare and I had a bass drum and then I had a hi-hat and a cymbal and that's all I had. That's all you need. Kerry just overcomplicates it really. She's just, you know. I knew, you see, now I knew that when Angela went down this road, it was going to be like all about, yeah, we'll be celebrating female drummers. I was like, it's actually just going to give Angela lots of chances <laughs> to take the piss out of me. Yeah, we'll be celebrating <laughs> exactly and, yeah, celebrating and slagging off. Uh, exactly. It's <laughs> exactly what I expected to happen. So. <laughs> and I think because I was taught by, by both the people that taught me, both being guitarists and lead vocals. So I think they taught me in like, drums are about the rhythm we want you to hit the beat and we don't want anything else from you you know <laughs> yeah that's well that's what that's what happens in this band as well to be fair I try to do something else and then it's like can you can can you just play a disco beat cheers <laughs> we do we do let you hit some toms every now and again but quite yeah. often you go can you do less of that just trying to get you to rein it in Kerry you know you just get too carried away that's all um <laughs> just kidding Anyway, should we should we get on to some some music? Yeah, I reckon we probably should. So, Kerry, who's your new discovery of the week? I've I've got a cool band for you this week. They are called Crosswires, and I literally did actually discover them for the first time this week. Um, they are a four piece from East London, post punk band. Um, really, really cool sound. The song that I've got for you is called Distraction Technique which is taken from their debut album, A Life Extinct, uh, which came out in November last year on Culture War Records and released was released on 12-inch silver vinyl, which I have to say looks very pretty. Um, and uh, recently they also just sort of released it as part of its own four-track EP uh, with three demos that weren't available to stream before. So they've just got that out um, recently and the track's been getting airplay from the likes of John Kennedy on Radio X and Steve Lamack on BBC Six Music. So they're doing pretty well with it. So uh, let's have a listen. This is Distraction Technique. The kid in music, can you straight? 
pub we drank in is now selling houses. Oh, cafe eating by coffee chain. Distraction Technique by Crosswires. Um, a super cool song. What do you think, Angela? I really like it. I think there's there's a lot of the kind of modern punk stuff that's going on, you know, like Fontaine's DC and Idols in there. But yeah. this, this kind of has a bit of a refreshing edge to it and almost has kind of the guitars remind me a little bit of maybe like the Buzzcocks. Yeah, I can see that. With that sort of kind of hook and... Uh, yeah, I like the way that that kind of, um, without wanting to say the word hook again, hooks you in and uh, <laughs> carries you throughout the track. It's like, you know, other things are going on, but that sort of, sort of seems to anchor the song throughout. I really like it. Yeah, totally. So um, if you want to go find them, they are Crosswire Band on Twitter and just Crosswires on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and I can't wait for us to be allowed to play gigs again so I can go see them play because I reckon they'd be brilliant. So, Joe, what did you what did you think of them? But I really like that get the buzzcocks thing, and I always like that kind of punky sound, and it's quite dancey as well. I would definitely yeah. dance back to it. But the vocals had a weird sort of almost Robert Planty Led Zeppelin-y, slightly echoey, Ooh. like more more what's the word? That like punk is more shouty. This was more yeah, it was more that sort of way of singing where it's more operatic, like. Yeah, it's more yeah. heavy metal, but I don't mean heavy metal in a bad way. Led Zeppelin, I would think, was what it made me think of with the singing. It was sort of because it's sort of echoey and bigger rather than yeah. It was an interesting mix to me. I thought I could feel sort of seventiesness in it. Yeah, no, I think I think that's quite. Do you want to come on every week and actually we play a song? Because you, you do so much better at describing. <laughs> yeah, songs than us. seriously. <laughs> Oh God. Actually, talking about songs, because one of the things that we um, asked if, if you had any tracks that you wanted to bring along, Joe, and talk about. So um, there's there's a few on the list. I thought, if you, do you want to start with one? It's so hard, isn't it, though? Always so hard. And I go from thing to thing. So if you ask me, um, you know, in three weeks, I might be into another thing. I'll always, yeah. I, you know, I like, it's not saying I change my taste in music, but you get into a, a certain music. Like Absolutely. at the moment, I'm wearing the T-shirt. I've only just discovered the Dub Pistols. I love the Dub Pistols. And I absolutely love them. And it came about through a weird way of a friend of mine who's a comic, Ben Norris. 
he put up a little video. He'd shaved his teenage daughter's head because she wanted a skinhead. And he played the song, which I really love, Skinhead Girl. And it made me think, oh, I haven't listened to that kind of music for ages. So then I was listening to Neville Staple and I was listening to a bit of specials and that. And then I found the Dub Pistols through all that. So I'm, and also as soon as the weather gets nice, that's perfect music. Yeah, definitely. I saw, I saw the Dub Pistols for the first time when I was like a teenager at this little local festival um, near Canterbury <clears throat> called um, Lounge on the Farm, which we used to go to like religiously when, when I was a teenager. Um, and discovered so many great bands there. But yeah, that was where I first discovered the Dub Pistols and I've seen them a few times around at festivals and stuff since then. They're brilliant. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're so quite political. And, yeah. You know, they, some of their songs, a lot of social commentary. You know, they just seem like really like good people as well. Yeah, yeah. totally. You know, that they're, they're not just, yeah, it's totally. more than just music. You know, it's about yeah, yeah, yeah. something. But anyway, I'm not yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about that. But I just want to say it's so hard to pick because you go, oh, and then I'm listening to this. So what did I pick? Now, I thought uh, I picked a Train in Vain by The Clash because I thought, obviously, I love lots of Clash songs. Who wouldn't love The Clash? But I thought that's what the, there's something about the way that starts. I feel happy. I love to sing along to it. It's just a song that I could listen to over and over again. And I thought... Be honest, it's not like, you know, because sometimes you go, oh, I feel under pressure to pick something really interesting and obscure and everything. And go, be honest, you'll always be happy to hear that song. That to me, I would go, I would always be happy if someone would play that. And I've heard lots of people do different versions of it. And I always like those as well. So I'll pick that. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good choice, I have to say. It's a good choice. Because um, when, when you emailed over with, with some, when you were sort of talking about what songs you might you might do and the clash came up, I thought, It'd be lovely to hear something that wasn't the obvious choice for the clash. So uh yeah. So should we should we hear a bit of that that now? great uh it's got a great rhythm and oh and yeah. then i picked uh frederick paddy smith and she's you know she's an amazing figure obviously yeah. in music anyway and or and was you know everything about her it was in that she was really good um mm -hmm. had a great voice looked her look was so iconic without yeah sort of without trying Sure. Um, but probably was, but it, you know, you go, oh, it was just perfect. And that, you know, the white shirt with the black tie, the hair was always just yeah. tucked up in the most fantastic way. <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. But also she's really, she's really sort of intellectually, she was a heavyweight as well, musically and mm -hmm. her writing. Some of it, to be honest, goes over my head. Some of what she does, I'm like, oh, Patty, I like it when you've got a tune, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, sometimes sure. she can be a bit too heavy for me. And, um, but Frederick makes me cry, you know, and yeah. it's about her great love. And um, it's just yeah. so, it's, it's, I always feel like crying now. Um, oh. it's, such a, it's just, it's the simplest sentiment as well. You're the one, you know, it's not a complicated love song. Mm -hmm. 
but there's something really deep and strong about it that makes you think, no, this is the one, this is who you're going to be with forever through mm. thick and thin and bad and good, because that's it. And very simple things about the person has made you love them. And it's, it's a beautiful song. And her voice is just great. Her voice is so perfect for rock and roll. Absolutely is, isn't it? What I love about Patti Smith is just the the honesty within her lyrics. She's, I suppose she's quite unapologetic, isn't she? But, and just sort of says it how it is. And like you say, some of the songs are more tuneful than others. But it's the way of Patti Smith was not to be a pop star as such, was it? Um, she had something to say and made her own way. And sometimes that was kind of more poppy and tuneful. And other times it was more of a statement. And, and I suppose that's what I love about her. Um, I mean, I like some of the sweary, the pissy, when she thinks, you know, the what's the pissy song where she talks about um, that? Um, I can't think of what it's called, but yeah. I know what you're talking about. Um, and that felt like, oh, my God, that's really, you know, and I love that, like you say, she wasn't trying to, you know, it's just the fuck off attitude. She wasn't trying to yeah. appeal to anybody. Yeah. And it's so lovely to have that strength to not give a shit. And she'd always yeah. had that. Well, let's listen to a snip of that song now. And after that, Kerry's going to jump into the story that she's brought along this week. So without further delay, this is Pay Smith. week I have uh, a bit of a story for you you can decide if it's kind of legitimate or not to claim this but there is a suggestion that maybe that San Francisco may be cursed so I am going to talk about the curse of San Francisco and the bands who kind of succumbed is that the right word succame can you say succame succumbed 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 to this curse and uh, played their final shows um, in the city so uh, the first band I'm going to talk about is the Beatles, um, who played their final live show on the 29th of August 1966, before they became exclusively a studio band. So that um, the final US tour that that they played was pretty much cursed from the start. To be honest, um, it was coming off the back of uh, John Lennon's comment that they were bigger than Jesus, which obviously had a huge backlash, and they'd been banned. Uh, by 35 US radio stations. Some communities were staging burnings of their records and they were receiving death threat threats um, as well. So they were sort of in danger on this tour, which I have to say, until I started looking into this, I didn't know the extent of all of this that sort of came off the back of that comment. I sort of was vaguely aware, but not the extent that it went to. So a lot of their shows on that tour were actually picketed by the KKK. Wow. And um, so one show which had a particularly bad um sort of uh what's the word like event that happened was memphis uh so they received an anonymous call from someone saying that one or all of the band would be assassinated during the performance and the kkk nailed a beatles record to a cross outside the stadium and then during the show um a firecracker was thrown on stage uh which caused them to think that that somebody had been shot and everyone sort of looked at john lennon because they were expecting that 
he would be the most likely one but thankfully it was just it was just a firecracker um and then after that they were due to perform in cincinnati but torrential rain and lightning resulted in one of their roadies receiving an electric shock severe enough to throw him across the stage um and they were forced to postpone that one um because of the rain uh following that in la at the dodger stadium Fans rushed the field during their performance, leading to a clash with police that resulted in 25 people being arrested and dozens more being injured. And it took over two hours um, to get things back under some sort of control, during which time the band were all imprisoned in their dressing room. There were three different attempts to get them out using decoy limos and then an ambulance, which all failed before they were eventually ferried out in a tank-like armoured car. Um, So you can basically just tell and understand where there might have been a bit fed up with touring by the end of this tour because it was a <laughs> yeah, you'd be like fuck that i'm not i'm not doing it this was a bit anymore. of a nightmare do you know what i mean we we get fed up on much less than that when it comes to touring <laughs> <laughs> we mostly just get fed up of our hangovers to be honest um uh and on top of that um they weren't really enjoying playing live anymore because they just couldn't hit, actually hear themselves over the sound of the screaming fans um their fans were just so loud screaming throughout the whole concert and didn't really care about hearing them even. They were there more to to see them and just to see the Beatles than to really hear them. Um, and something I hadn't thought about that um, I read was that sort of stadium rock was sort of in its infancy at that time. And so on top of the kind of the volume of the screaming fans, it was just the equipment couldn't handle it as well. You know, it hadn't the equipment hadn't got to the point yet where it could really handle that, that many fans watching a show and stand up to the sound of them um and to the size of the space um so you know they couldn't hear themselves playing on stage um which they were and they were quite glad that the fans probably couldn't hear them because they were pretty sure they weren't playing well at all um and so they weren't enjoying playing live at all um so yeah that was sort of the the situation when they came to this final show at candlestick park and uh when they arrived at the stadium the gates were shut and they were forced to drive around and around the stadium in the bus, being followed by a convoy of fans that was building and building until they were forced to to drive out and around the neighbourhood for a while until they sort of were able to get in. Um, and the weather was cold, windy, foggy, as it often is in San Francisco. Um, the stage was constructed over um, second base. It's a baseball stadium. The stage was constructed over second base and surrounded with a chain link link fence for added security so they were literally performing sort of inside a cage basically um, which just is quite hard to picture I but would just be really bizarre so I think they were sort of like inside a cage and quite far away from the fans it just seems like quite a an odd performance situation I mean you would just stop and you'd go is is there a reason that we're still doing this yeah which is is exactly what happened basically you can I mean you can see it right when you read all this it's just or hear all of this it's sort of like why on earth would you want to keep doing that like it doesn't it all of the joy out of playing live was just gone basically because they were just too famous and the one thing I never really understood the one thing I never really understood well it's not just the one thing but with um, the whole fandom thing of I just can't imagine being that excited no me neither to just spend like a whole concert just, no. just screaming. They'd called them what they called them Bobby Soxers, and it was Frank Sinatra that people used to do it to, yeah. and then Beatles. So there was this thing, and it was teenage girls, whether because nobody was allowed to have sex or anything, you know, whether people were just so <laughs> het up with sexual Maybe. frustration that they did go, it's like a sort of 
you know, it's a bit like you see people, you know, a big Christian church where everyone starts going crazy. It's a bit like that, you know, that group dynamic yeah, yeah, yeah. and hormones, all teenage girls, just, but just like you say, to scream all the way through and then being adults, you have to go, what is the point of, what have you come to see? Just, yeah, exactly. just to look at us. It was, well, that's what it was. It was just to see them, just to sort of be in their presence. I mean, did they not try anything where they just like, had a massive banner saying, if you don't shut the fuck up, <laughs> We're just going to go off stage and you're not going to see us at all. So up to you. To be fair. Yeah, the thing that Kerry was saying about, we don't think about that, the sound systems, you know. Yeah. Marshall hadn't come on with his stacks and things. No, so exactly. they were having these sort of, you know, regional theatre PA systems that wouldn't, wouldn't be Yeah, just couldn't, yeah. couldn't handle it at all. Um, so they, oops, they, um, I've lost my place in my notes now. Right, yeah. So they, so yeah, they had the cage for added security, and then also um, they had an armored van that was kept running during the show in case they needed to make a quick escape, which I guess was sort of following what had happened in LA. So if you can just imagine, they've, they've got their escape plan ready. Um, so they played a thirty-three minute long set of eleven songs, which was typical for them. That was another thing I hadn't really realized. They only ever played half-hour sets. If you think about what you know, headline bands tend to play these days. Um, which found it interesting they only ever played um, half-hour sets. Um, and, yeah, as well as so they were sort of contending with the sound of the wind and the screams, uh, and I read something that said it was basically like standing on a crowded runway with jets taking off on all sides was what the sound was sort of like on the stage. Um, so, yeah, they'd pretty much decided that it was going to be their final show before they even got up there, and, and Paul McCartney asked Tony Barrow to tape the set. So there is a, a tape recording of the set which cuts out just sort of halfway through the last song. Um, and between the songs as well, they set up cameras on the amplifiers with timers and posed for photos as their sort of last hurrah, um, their last show. I mean, they obviously still had, did lots of loads and loads of stuff after that, but it was just all in the studio. The next album after that was um, Sergeant Pepper and... 1967 so but this was just like the peak of their their sort of stardom um and they decided that yeah wasn't worth playing live shows anymore so yeah so that was the beatles so uh the next band to to succumb to the curse was the band um a decade later on the 25th of november 1976 the band played their final show at the winter ballroom in san francisco the last waltz which was filmed and made into a movie by the same name by Martin Scorsese. So uh, that was sort of that was planned to be a final farewell concert. Um, it featured more than a dozen special guests, including Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, Neil Diamond, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Ringo Starr, Muddy Waters, Ronnie Wood, and Neil Young. So loads and loads of um, people sort of collaborated on that show and were guests on that show. Um, the band decided to split because. They felt that their rock and roll lifestyle was sort of passing the point of no return um, and they'd sort of seen what had happened to people like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison and bands sort of imploding around them trying to live the, the rock and roll high life. So they decided that, you know, at every show and concert there were sort of packs of destructive influences that would show up and that they needed to get out of the, the line of fire to keep from self-destruction, basically. Um, so that show is sort of hailed well the last waltz the movie is hailed to be one of the the greatest documentary concert films ever made so they sort of went out on a high um i suppose and i you know based on their reasoning it sounds like it was probably a good shout <laughs> to to save themselves from ending up like so many others 
Um, and then the final band that I want to talk about, uh, who sort of uh, the that San Francisco marked the end of them, were the Sex Pistols. So um, on January the fourteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, the Sex Pistols played their final concert, also at the Winter Ballroom. Uh, so the same venue as the band. Um, and similarly to the Beatles, their tour was sort of a disaster from the start. It was their first and last US tour. Um, at that point, Sid Vicious was already hopelessly addicted to heroin. Johnny Rotten was hardly speaking to the rest of the band. And although it was their first time in America, they had had um, sort of a lot of press and they could have been playing pretty big venues in major cities. But their manager, um, Malcolm McLaren, decided to book them at redneck bars kind of across the south where they were sort of unlikely to receive much of a warm welcome. Um, but, you know, he wanted to just create controversy, which is what he he always sort of wanted to do with the Sex Pistols um, and create that sort of culture clash. So well, they sort of had an army of journalists to document the whole thing and sort of just, you know, capture this bizarre thing of these sort of oddly dressed London sort of youths in these redneck bars in America surrounded by sort of like cowboys. And so... Um, yeah, all just a slightly odd way to go about things, I suppose. Um, and it wanted to avoid the publicity that would have surrounded a showcase in LA or New York. Um, so the San Francisco show was was the biggest venue of the tour, um, but the sound was awful. Um, you can actually watch on YouTube. There's the entire show um, is up on YouTube that you can watch, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, Steve Jones' guitar um, keeps cutting out, and he was breaking strings left, right, and center. Sid Vicious' addiction issues were hampering his sort of already limited playing abilities. Um, mm-hmm. And there were, which we touched on in our, our last episode, didn't we, Angela? You talked a bit about yeah. Sid Vicious. Um, and yeah, there were moments where he wasn't playing a note at all and he wasn't even plugged in for half of the show, <laughs> according to uh, Steve Jones. Um, Johnny Rotten delivers a pretty convincing performance um, throughout the show, despite the sound issues, pretty much up until the final song, where it's it's almost like the mask sort of slips, sort of that mask of Johnny Rot- yeah. Rotten slips. Um, and they end with a with a cover of No Fun um, by the Stooges. Uh, and towards the end of the song, uh, sort of in between, you just hear him just saying, he just says, like, there's no fun in being alone. This is no fun. It's no fun at all. Sort of in a very genuine, like, you can sort of tell it's just what he's really thinking. Um, and then, yeah, the song ends with him famously asking the crowd, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? And he just drops the mic and walks off stage. Such like an iconic it's moment. It's such an iconic moment. And, and sort of like Johnny Rotten, that's the always thing I always like about him. He is, he is a kind of showman. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and he, I think he plays that sort of beautifully in all that chaos. You know, it's not yeah, by yeah, chance yeah. that that happens, you know, that, that no. performance and the way he is. I mean, he, I felt it was a great performance as him. You know, that's what people wanted from him. I, do, I always think it was weird that at that time in America, they wouldn't have had big audience. Or they, they might have done because people might have come and gone, oh, who are these people? And then they would have just hated them. They yeah. Would have absolutely hated which them. I think it's exactly, yeah, which is exactly what happened pretty yeah, much. Yeah, it's just, yeah. But it's great yeah. to see. I mean, it's one of those things that, I don't know, just always, I always think the sex pistols are very good for just ma- reminding people that it's all shit. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the music business has always been full of awful people. And yeah. uh, do your thing. And, uh, yeah. Or, totally. Now, yeah, I'm feeling you've been swindled. Yeah. So, yeah, what, what, do you, what do you reckon? San Francisco, cursed or not? 
I think America's just cursed. <laughs> well, there's that, there's yeah, it, sure. that whole West Coast thing, isn't it? Because it wasn't a couple of years later, it were, after that was, was the Manson murders. So, and everybody talked about how there's something weird okay. about the ley lines and all of that shit. Joe, just one, just one thing, right, Kerry? Every, I, just I know, say, every time. It wasn't me that brought up the Manson murders <laughs> this time. I bring them up. I bring Charles because Charles Manson. Every, every episode, he, he comes seems up. to be linked every to every single bloody thing I've spoken about. Every episode, and uh, so I need to do an episode on him. But um, I've, I sort of probably said, "All right, I'll, I'll try and go one episode without mentioning him," and then you do. It, so it's, it's, <laughs> it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Well, that whole weird thing of him, I mean, him working with one of the Beach Boys—it's also mad. But there was a lot of people <gasps> yeah. saying there's a bad, there's a bad scene in LA. There's something not yeah. right somehow in this whole like, yeah it's all like people go you know people shouldn't have been living there it's like it's is sort of cursed and yeah it goes up to san francisco which i always think is a bad place but yeah i love san francisco yeah but maybe they, maybe they're just like we don't have big concerts yeah i think i think the more i think the moral of the story is if you've already got some sort of interpersonal and you know addiction related type issues then maybe don't go play in san francisco because it might be the end <laughs> Yeah, or don't don't shift the blame to a city. It's 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 kind of you, isn't it? It's, it's kind of you. <laughs> We're learning a lot, aren't we? That's right. We are. Yeah. Don't yeah. blame a city. Look inside yourself. That's, that's the moral we've learned on this podcast today. Oh, it's yeah. deep. There's, there's there's always a moral of some description. Yeah. It's Sometimes. interesting. I didn't know uh, the band thing. I'd completely forgotten about the band. I'm going to watch yeah. that now. Yeah. The, the last wall. Yeah. I watched some clips of it. It's it's mm. pretty cool. Yeah. There you go. Well, with that, um, I'm going to say there's a link, but there actually isn't we'll... at all. <laughs> I mean, the song's called There's a Sense, but not sense of a curse or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I just thought, yeah, it's probably time to play Weekend Recovery, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, let's do it. So, um, so this is Weekend Recovery's new song, which is out on the 5th of June. I absolutely love this band. They're, they're a three-piece. They've formed probably... What, they've kind of had various lineups, but I'd say they probably were taken more seriously as a band from about two or three years ago, and have since just sort of been zooming. Like their last single was playlisted on Planet Rock, Kerrang. They've been on Radio X. All the blogs are writing about them. Their shows sell out. They're you know they're they're very very exciting bands um, to kind of get on board with with now. So uh, here's your chance. This is their next single. There's a sense.
happy. It's really got happy. a really, really happy feel to it. Yeah, it's like a, I could imagine being in the car with that really loud and going, ooh, yeah, long drive, lovely. I suppose one of the things I really love about um, that song is, okay, so it's incredibly upbeat and, you know, you could totally pogo around any club, dance floor to that song. But it's actually about... Um, the crappy side of the music industry and having like, well, being insecure and people singing your praise one minute, then stabbing you in the back the next. And, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't name any names in that, but then also looking at the, the kind of relationship between, you know, the jealousies between bands as well, that seemingly at some point they seem like they're being helpful but they're actually like comedians not. as well yes <laughs> <laughs> I totally relate to this yeah but then I also really like the fact that there seems to be like a whole bunch of like influences in there from like sort of Japanese punk pop to um to sort of grungier sort of 90s guitar bands stuff going in there the vocal line but it's complicated isn't it? there's a lot going on yeah yeah and there are only three things really yeah, so wow. what are they? Well, see, weekend recovery. I don't know them at all. Yeah, weekend recovery. I'll 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 share some oh, stuff. Look, with oh, I look at them really up. Good. I'm surprised I don't know them because oh, I might. Have, hmm. They're not I didn't find them because I found you. I found you through. Um, God, I'm terrible at remembering names. They're Scan. I think they're Scandinavian. Cocktail slippers. Is that the name of a band? Cocktail. Cocktail sleep. It should be. If it isn't. If, if it's not, then it will be now. <laughs> yeah. so, oh, they're like, uh, they can't, there's the motor, black motorcycle things, whatever they are. See, I'm terrible at remembering. God, there's something called the cocktail. <laughs> Dance, one of the songs, Dance Like a Rattlesnake. I really like that. It's girls. Um, cocktail slippers. I think this is like a quiz question to anyone. Yeah, in, yeah. My, uh, uh, but just me, just a quiz in my own head. I, I don't know the answers. <laughs> with, with the little clues. That's how it. you ca- you kind of came up in a kind of, you know, if you like this, you'll like this. And you, uh, oh, you. Cool. And I would have thought I would have found them as well. You're in my oh. running playlist with these oh. cocktail slippers. I'm sure it is. Cool, sure I have to check them out. Well, maybe we'll feature them on the next, next episode then. Uh, okay, cool. Well, I, I reckon, Joe, it's time for you to... To share another another track with us. I think I, I, I said one and then I emailed again. So shall I say the two that I thought and then I don't know which one you've said I can have? You can, you can, have, you can have them both. Oh, right. So yes, I thought yes. if you're going to go, it's a bit like if people say, who's your favourite comic? I go, oh, do you have favourite comics? I have favourite jokes. So yeah. I often, I'm not a, a great one for albums. I like, yeah. you know, but, I, but a song, I might go, yeah, I really like a band, but then sometimes I don't like them, and then, but then I really like a song. But uh, nothing compares to you. Um, it makes me, it's a beautiful song. Yeah. And Sinead O'Connor, when it came out, oh my God, uh, I hadn't really noticed it when Prince did it. And then, you know, her doing it. And it makes me, weirdly then, it was very happy. I loved it. I I'm, I'm, think of it playing it really loud in summer and everyone singing, like, because your heart was broken, but not, not very, not, not broken very badly. You know what I mean? Just a little and bit that broken. kind of just, you're kind of young and, oh, yeah, oh, really heartbroken. Oh, he's nice. Oh, hello. You know, like you're not really heartbroken, but you like to pretend you're heartbroken. So yeah. in that way, I thought, oh, it's a really beautiful song. And then it became like, oh, it's when you're really heartbroken. It's oh, you can't <laughs> listen to it. And then weirdly, as you get older now, it makes me think of uh, dead people. It makes me think of nothing compares to you. It makes me think of people you've lost. So it's like yeah, a song sure. that changes. 
And, uh, but I've also got it, I've got it um, on my running rock thing. I've got it by me first in the gimme gimme's and it still works the same. I still find it sad. So, so how do you run to that? Because to me, I have to have fast stuff. Like if, if that came on, I'd start running. No, I run to the punk rock version of yeah, it. Yeah, me first yeah. in the gimme gimme's version. I can, I can <laughs> Oh, it's red. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, not the Sinead Econom. No, not at all. No, no, I have to have fast things. So uh, I think it's a just a beautiful song. And I, and I like hearing different versions of it as well, because it always, it always works. But it's, I suppose it's like what you're saying, as in, you know, that's when you hit on a really great song, isn't it? When it, it, you've just explained that it's related to in lots of different ways in different situations in your life, which, you know, at the time when it came out, that's exactly why it was such a massive hit. And uh, I don't know, it's so, so emotional. And if you see the video of it, it's almost, it's quite uncomfortable to watch, I feel. It's like just this close up. And apparently she actually was genuinely crying and it wasn't like... Yeah. Fight. But did you see her do it recently when she did it recently? No, no, I didn't. Uh, yeah, she did it recently on something or other, uh, very stripped back. And and again, she did it then as a, a much older woman with yeah. her children and heartbreak and mental health problems. And uh, she did it so simply. It was, mm. it was really, really beautiful. And her voice is rougher. Uh, rougher yeah. now so it wasn't as sweet wasn't necessarily like a choir boy how she sounded before yeah and again it was great the song aged with her and her new yeah. older woman's version of it was equally fantastic it's been seven hours and 15 days since you took your love away We're going to play another song, aren't we? We're going to play... Oh, yeah, the other one, then, because I suddenly thought, oh, the other thing that, that I do really like and makes always makes me feel happy is a bit of disco. And I do love a bit of disco. Or I love As it. do we. Chic, Odyssey, all of that. Uh, Saturday Night Fever, that album, fantastic. And then this one, uh, Archibald and the Drells, just such a great, how could you not jump about and feel good? <laughs> That is a fantastic tune. Who's it by again? Archie and the Drells. Archie Bell and the Drells. Love, love, love disco, to be honest. It's uh, it's, it's a big influence to me. Um, and again, it was one of those things when I was growing up, I absolutely was not a fan of disco. Me, I was exactly the same. And it was more of sort of like a distraction technique that, you know, if um, I'm feeling sad or going through something in in life that's difficult I'd much rather listen to something that's carefree and upbeat to get me through the day rather than something like Sinead O'Connor nothing compares to you where I'm just going to sit and cry in a corner you know it's a yeah disco just has that uplifting carefree sense to it and I suppose my favorite of all time is Gloria love that song (laughs) which you missed Sleater Kinney do a cover of at the gig recently because you went because I left early yeah 
to do a radio interview so it wasn't i was just being lazy and like, just which, which was then delayed and we both did together in an alleyway in brixton yeah <laughs> drinking, drinking beers, beers in an alleyway yeah. <laughs> yeah. being interviewed on radio x <laughs> The well, other happy, as well, now the other happy music that I'm into at the moment, because I suddenly saw, you know, lockdown, people go, oh, you could learn something. And I suddenly thought, I've always wanted to be able to do Northern Soul. You know, when you see clips of it and the way they bounce, right? And I thought, well, I used to, it's a bit like, I used to do rockabilly bopping. So I thought, it can't be that different. So I've been listening to a lot of Northern Soul, uh, but I still can't do it. Like I'm, I'm doing it at home and I'm going, it's the slippy shoes. You need the really <laughs> slippy shoes and the slippy floor. I'm convinced because he's going, and then you do the slide. And I'm like, I'm not fucking sliding. I can't do it. But you know what? I think I think this is like a reality TV show for you, Joe. I think this is what you should be doing in lockdown. I think it should be, you know, loads of people talking about getting hobbies and learning to do new things. This, this should be your thing. Well, of course, I just thought, because people kept telling me what they were learning things. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try and learn a thing. And also I, I get to listen to some really nice music that I like and then I just end up having a little dance anyway because I thought, well, I can't do what you're doing, but I'll do what I think is dancing. No, but it's that, it's the way they lift off the floor and they look when you see a whole room of dance floor of people doing Northern Soul, it looks so great because it's like they're floating. But I, maybe I'm just too clod hopping. I'll never, I'll never, I'll never get that floaty thing that they do. Yeah. But it's great music. It's so dancey. Yeah. Right. Well, we've we've got we've got Joe, who um, is absolutely fantastic on the show, and has brought us some amazing, amazing tracks to to play. So I hope you've been enjoying them. But uh, we're going to move on to our next segment, which is all about celebrating drummers. So Kerry, you know you're a drummer. I'm celebrating you as well. Are you, are you sure, Kerry? Let's clap, celebrate, Kerry. Clap, 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 I told, and and Angela, Angela said she was going to do like a list of of her top drummers, and I was like, well, that's fine as long as I'm number one. <laughs> and then she said, no, I'm not including you on it. And I was like, fine. <laughs> well, next we're gonna do we're gonna do a bonus podcast yes. um, about the the life of <laughs> of of Kerry. It involves circus training. I was, I was, I, for um, a second, then I was like, does it? <laughs> Training. What, what circus skills do you have? I I I I don't. I've 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 attempted juggling once or twice unsuccessfully, but <laughs> that's about it. It's full of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so, if you want to hear it, you that's should me. really be a patron to us. I, I often think of juggling and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They do go hand in hand, a hundred percent. You know what brought her down in the end? The juggling. That was the it was. Yeah. It wasn't the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was the juggling. So celebrating female drummers. So I'm going to talk um, about three drummers in in particular that I think stand out for me as being not only fantastic at what they do, but brilliant individuals where it is not just about them being in a band and what they do and that that small part of the musical sort of world, that they're they're bigger than than that and they've used their their um their skills to to better the world. Wanted to say something a bit cooler than that, but in a sense, that's what it is. Um, so I suppose the first person I want to talk about is Cindy Blackman. Yep, she was born November, not this, not last November, was it? <laughs> 18th of November 1959 in Yellow Springs in Ohio. And she's an American jazz and rock drummer who's recorded several solo albums and she's toured with just 
so many, so many incredible artists. And the one I suppose that people heard of the most is uh, Lenny Kravis. Yeah. And she kind of stuck with him from the beginning throughout like his whole career. Not that his career's ended, but during the whole sort of prime of that. She's also played with Joss Stone, Cassandra Wilson, and that's, that's just to name, name a few. Uh, she first discovered the drums when she was seven years old at a pool party, as, as you do. In America, you have a pool party <laughs> over here. It'd be a puzzle party in the back. I was going to say that's definitely not how I started playing drums. <laughs> there were no 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 <laughs> pool parties involved. <laughs> well, she was she was just walking walking to the bathroom, spotted a drum kit as you do, and thought, oh, I'm going to have a go at that. Um, and so and that's and that started her sort of love affair of of drums. And the way she describes it is, it's sort of you know she she felt like she discovered herself even just at 7 years old that that was something that she had to do with her her life and she convinced her parents to buy her like a a kids drum kit after sort of months of persuading them they were just like you know people play the violin or the flute you're a girl why are you playing drums but she she took that up and she was self-taught for a while and then went off to music school i'm not going to do her whole story but um just to talk about some of the things that she did she didn't just play as a session musician she's a fantastic artist and writer in her in her own right so in 1984 she was featured in new york's king's crown city uh program for ted carson's jazz stars of the future uh she was featured there which was quite rare being being a girl and also being a girl playing drums really not not something that you would really really see, but she was that exceptional that she was included in that, and it was enough um, that would actually land her a record deal that she could record her own her own album, which again you know back then wasn't wasn't really the normal way that that, that things were done. So in 1993, um, Lenny Kravis heard her play, and what how, I mean, Kerry, you can tell me how the Bug Eye audition went versus this. Okay, perfect. Right? So she had. A chat on the phone with Lenny Kravis. Now, keep in mind, this is 1993. And he just put her on the spot and went, well, I want to hear you play drums now. And she's like, well, now? Yeah, on the phone. So she just puts the phone on the side and goes off and starts playing, like, amazing drum beats. I mean, that must have sounded crap, right? Because phones, phone recordings are pretty shocking. But, um... But anyway, it was enough. It, she was good enough that he invited her to LA. But then, you know, she thought, "Oh wow, I've you know I've got the gig." Only to find that actually there were thirty other people sat there all waiting to audition. Wow. She's like, "Oh my god!" But she got it. She got it. Obviously. I was going to say, so, yeah. Um, in in comparison, I sent Angela a Facebook message <laughs> saying, "Don't know if you remember me. We played a gig together like two years ago, but I'd love to play drums for you." And Angela went. Okay. <laughs> that was pretty much it. <laughs> it was a Kerry actually arranged a phone call with me because she thought it was like it was bullshit. I was like, I refused. I refused to believe it until I actually spoke on the phone to her because she'd like sent me like a big email with like all the plans and all the songs and everything. And I was like, you've not even asked. Like, okay, you saw me play, but that was like two years ago not asked me for any sort of video or anything and I was just like so I called I was like just checking are you still considering other people or am I definitely it she was like oh no 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 you're it I was like okay cool <laughs> and then we were worried that she wasn't really going to come back from Canada but, <laughs> now we'd auditioned loads of people and it was just I don't know we felt quite deflated with it you know you have to sort of have a connection 
with a person and really sort of I don't know they just kind of have to get it it's it's a really sort of strange chemistry being in a band with people and we've got it wrong so many times in I mean you know I've been in a number of bands over the years and they're great people but the chemistry just yeah, wasn't sure. quite right and you know um we did have a great chat with you that night and your drumming skills were incredible and we're still friends with your friends That's so true, yeah you know it kind of it kind of made sense it to did. us so it's not as weird as it sounds but <laughs> yeah it probably was a bit odd um anyway she did nine studio albums herself as band's leader she can sing she can play she can construct songs her albums are incredibly successful and she's actually cited as being one of the the greatest jazz drummers ever really um so you know she's she's very well respected and she's married to Carlos Santana who you know not the style of music that's really my cup of tea but I appreciate that he's incredible and they they work a lot together now but and also I mean when I was growing up and um I mean I know there are other female drummers and I you know there's there's others that we'll we'll mention that I, I knew of but in in kind of things like Lenny Kravis being so popular and that drummer being female and just looking so dead cool, I just think was quite inspirational for people to see, really, that it wasn't... The, the I think, yeah, and I think, weirdly, the fact that it wasn't, that she wasn't in a band, it's not yeah, about yeah. that, it's about her being chosen because she's so good at drumming. Yeah, exactly. Like, like a, and bloke is, you know, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, they're yeah. the best, rather than... Oh, it's really good. We got this girl drummer, and then they're in this band. This package. No, it's not about that at all. I think that's that's a really important. Yeah, difference, yeah, for sure. No, exactly, exactly. So my, the, I mean, there were so many drummers that um, I could have picked, and and to be fair, I could do an episode on each and every one of them. But um, so my second one is Toby Vale from Bikini Kill. Good choice. And I didn't know a lot of this about her actually that I'm going to tell you I mean I always thought she was incredibly cool uh we saw Bikini Kill reformed after 22 years and we went to see them play at Brixton anyway I always thought she was like very very talented great writer she sings play drums you know they swap they her and Kathleen Hannah swap sometimes she plays bass and Kathleen's playing drums and I just loved the dynamic of it but I didn't really know a great deal about her until I looked into this and uh, so she's not only a muse a musician she's a music critic and obviously a feminist activist we know that for her work with bikini kill and also you know outside of that she's very politically um, minded and outspoken but she was a central figure to the right girl scene which i thought was just because she was in bikini kill and i know a lot about kathleen hannah but not about the other members per se um, but did you know she was the one that actually coined the phrase right girl mm. and the way of spelling right girl, which is the G-R-R-L? I didn't know that, I didn't know that. but I do now. <clears throat> there you go. You've been educated, but there's more. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I so do she... this podcast, just for you to educate me on things, Angela, so thanks. <laughs> you are welcome. Uh, in 1989, Val published the first issue of her feminist zine, Jigsaw. When she published the zine, Val was working at an Olympia, Olympia sandwich shop with uh, Kathy Wilcox, who remembers being impressed by Val's focus on girls in bands, specifically including an aggressive emphasis on feminist issues. So one of Val's first bands was called The Go Team, and not to be confused with the Brighton band that came much later, 
down the line uh, called The Go Team. But it was a punk project started with Calvin Johnson in 1985. And the band released several cassettes and nine singles in total under independent label K Records. So she was actually already out there doing, doing her thing before Bikini Kill. Um, and how Kathleen Hanna actually met um, Toby was, was through that fanzine. Kathleen Hanna was touring with another band and stumbled across this scene and then decided she wanted to write for it. And that's how they met and became friends and then decided to form a band together. Um, so so that was that was their, their meeting. And then another interesting thing, and this was actually really quite a cool thing, um, so Toby Vell met Kirk Bain when she was hanging around with the Melvins in 1986 and Kirk Bain played guitar on one of her Go Team songs. They were really, really great friends. Vell and Cobain, I mean, they dated for like a little bit, but it's not like a, a big, a big story around that. But they also discussed sort of doing a music project together and recorded a few songs um, which actually ended up being Nirvana tracks. How cool. So she she co-wrote some early Nirvana stuff, and it gets better. Um, so after Dave Grohl joined Nirvana, Hannah um, started dating Dave Grohl, which I didn't know, actually. It's all so incestuous, isn't it? The, um, the grunge, the grunge scene, <laughs> how they all know each other. Yeah, anyway, so there's a really cool link with um, Teen Spirit here. So Teen Spirit was actually a deodorant brand. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, you're both going to know this, aren't you? <laughs> it's me. It's like everyone's going to be going, oh, God, Angela, <laughs> where have you been? Call yourself a music fan. <laughs> anyway, Teen Spirit was a deodorant brand that Val used to wear. And obviously dating Kurt, um, Kathleen Hannay's joke that, um, or wrote on the wall, actually, is is what, what how the story actually goes. She wrote on the wall, Kurt smells like Teen Spirit. So Kurt quite liked that, um, felt a bit inspired by it, thought that it might have had a bit of a deeper meaning and hence smells like teen spirit. So that is how Nirvana got the title for probably one of their most famous songs, Smells Like Teen Spirit. So there you go. Fact that you can take down the pub with you. So Val and Wilcox, which is another one of the members, and Hannah were determined to form a band and they formed Bikini Kill um, but she she wasn't just part of Bikini Kill and, and the link to, to Nirvana. But with her sister Maggie, um, she joined Alison Wolfe of Cat Power and members of Sleet Kinney to organise the first Lady Fest in 2000, which is a sort of music activism sort of arts conference thing. And the first one was held in Olympia and it was to celebrate women in music because women weren't getting festival bills. So they thought, well, fuck that, we're just going to start our own our own thing and it's going to be a certain type of music and we're going to drive this forward people aren't signing um female bands outside of it being a gimmick and so let's just create our own industry and that's exactly what they did um but then what they also did was not thinking that this is just our little baby let's let's just keep it to ourselves was the whole point was they handed it over to the world they created kind of chapters in different countries where any country could have a lady fest event and I remember playing you know when I was younger in in um I can't remember which band I was in now we played our first festival event which was Lady Fest 
at the garage in Highbury and Islington. And we, we played with like Electrolane and there was um, a band called the Suffragettes. And So she created, it's like an enabling tool, isn't it? For everybody yeah. like to spread it and go, no, you could, you can do this. And it's to open it out rather than to go, well, we're not getting work. So we'll create some work and we'll keep it closed. Yeah, exactly. It's my fest, my festival. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't a way for her to make money or, or create some sort of brand. It was literally, she was politically minded and really felt that this this was wrong and things needed to change and wanted to empower people to to make those changes themselves. Um, so I, I just thought that was that was really really cool. Um, about it's also that, that thing. I mean, I always think that thing like when I do any corporate work and they're always like, we're encouraging women. I go, well, women have got to see women do it. You know, yeah. so something like that where it's Lady Fest and women go, oh my God, it's just full of women playing instruments and being in bands and all different types of music and everything. That that makes women and young girls think, oh, I can yeah, do that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You've got yeah. to see people do it. And my third drummer, her name, yeah, that would help with <laughs> <I>, um, <yeah. laughs> We can't even find out her name. Now, her name's Faye Milton, and Faye Milton is the drummer of the band The Savages, and she also has another project, which is um, 180DB, um, and she also plays internationally as a session musician. Oh, and she's also a climate change activist and a DJ. What, what I do, I know a, I know a bit about her because she was on this Sky Art series, which I can't remember what it was called now. It was called something like the art of the drummer or something like that. It was a series with all different drummers speaking. It was really, really good, really interesting. And she was on that. And what I feel like I remember uh, about her is that she has like quite a classical background um, in her in her playing, like quite an orchestral background, which then, yeah, has sort of affects the way that she approaches uh, how she plays and sort of savages and other things where she actually aims for more of like an electronic music sort of vibe almost like garage is a big big influence on how she plays i think and she's like often she talks i think that she was really into garage when she was younger and so she's often trying to recreate sort of garage style beats and stuff like that am i on on track exactly exactly (laughs) hitting down the head that takes that whole paragraph sorry i was was just remembering what i what i was just seeing what i remembered from that documentary No, well done. But you haven't got this fact, Kerry. So sit back and get it back. Okay, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. Bring it. (laughs) What I do know is she's a South London girl. (laughs) I'm an East London girl, but I live in South London now. So I just, yeah, I'm a traitor to the East Londoners. Um, She first started learning to play when she was eight. And only because uh, her friend Lucy really wanted to play the drums and she wanted to hang out with her friend Lucy. Nice. Good reason. So, but yes, classic, classically trained and then was very much into drum and bass and garage, yeah. as, as as you said. And so she basically joined post-punk band Savages in 2011. It was something quite, quite different. It, it was something that was very driven, detailed and had kind of a, a dramatic lift mm. to their songs yeah, yeah for sure uh very along the lines of like if you think of Susie and the banshees for savages you've kind of got them yeah not that i want to say they sound the same they don't but it's it's along that, that sort of same vibe. sort of path yeah. and things like the drums is incredibly important in in that type of of music 
to create the sort of atmospheric sort yeah, of vibe. Yeah, and, the, and they are like need. her drums are really intense. Like it is quite like an, an atmospheric thing. Yeah, it's exactly, and it's it's one of those things that if you if any other drummer like I mean, it the, the band just wouldn't be the same. It's something yeah. that's just so so intrinsic to their sound. What she does, and they just would not be the same. The same without like I mean you know you get bands like Oasis where any drummer could be their drummer. It's not really going to make a difference, but with Savages it it did. So I suppose her drumming style uses sort of it's, it's like forward momentum yeah. building. Would you say that's yeah? Right? I'd say that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, and but there's sort of compositional sort of variety there. So there's like little extra details that come in that kind of really sort of just build. And I'd say that's that's kind of what a lot of Savage's songs do. And that doesn't mean that they're they're formulaic, but there is just like this tension that that, that band kind of carries. That yeah. Husbands is a fantastic example of that. If you listen to that, I'm going to do your playlist, Jay, so you can. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. Hear, I don't know them it's, it's, it's a really. I think you'll like them. Yeah, I think a you lot. will. They're There's really good. yeah. And I suppose an interview on Modern Drummer breaks down each song um, of Adore Life, the the album, and I think it's really worth worth reading because it's it's not. She also has a fantastic way of articulating. Um, music and playing drums whereas I've heard drummers talk about playing drums before and it's it's quite frankly boring but um <laughs> I feel like that was aimed at Kerry, me. I was about to say yeah I mean definitely Kerry, felt like that know, was aimed at me Jesus man <laughs> so why we did the podcast we wanted to just talk about something else it's like you know <laughs> yeah when I played that 4-4 beat man that's words I've never said <laughs> <laughs> um anyway um so yeah, she's the Savages drummer, but she's also the Music Declares Emergency co-founder. She has spoken out about the need for the industry as a whole to change its habits and to help beat climate change. In late 2018, a group of climate change activists launched a new initiative called Extinction Rebellion. And she's been involved with that since the start yeah which anyway. <laughs> how does she say, um, how does she say the music business can change then in terms of well i'm just i'm just gonna get on to this now so while she was on tour with savages in um in the u.s she she made a series of, of videos which called very important things and this series of, of videos films actually it interviews with an eclectic sort of range of figures who are engaged in the struggle to raise awareness and address issues of climate change. Um, so she talks to like a rabbi, she talks to someone from NASA, she talks to music producers, she talks to musicians. And it's all about, I mean, from, from everything, it's talking about, you know, the knowledge that we have and the way that the industry is set up with, with touring even. And there's no consideration to how to do that in a more eco-friendly way the fact that vinyl majority of the the, the, the production of, of vinyl is putting like poisonous liquids into rivers and and things like this it honestly i'll put a link in the show notes for people to to watch this because there are so many issues with the fact that the infrastructure around it is not environmentally sound and this this is the world that we live in that everything that we do right now we're fucked really and it's it's not to say oh well just just sit back and accept that and and you know we're fucked. It's it's about saying okay you know um, governments and commerce and you know global market you have made this situation and now you fucking need to fix it because you've made 
made us so reliant on these things that you know I can't I can't stop using the internet because I wouldn't be able to be a musician um you've made us reliant on this stuff and it's not an excuse we're asking you you created this technology create better technology climate change is a real thing because we have seen air quality um improve you can you can fucking see the Himalayas now you can you know not from here in Croydon. I was, 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 was going to say, that would be, oh my God. <laughs> that would be amazing. I, I suppose my point is that, you know, all those people that said the climate change is not a real thing, how can anyone believe them now? It's clear, surely, to the world. And we just, we can change things. And yes, there will be an ep- economic situation around that and we need to find better ways of doing things but it's you know it's not for me to create that technology and do that because you've you've made my life be that I have to have a mobile phone I have to stream things and I have to use transport to get around and food that I buy um has ridiculous wrapping um yeah I think one thing with the lockdown has shown that a lot of time we're doing unnecessary travel and making people commute to work when they don't need to. Maybe they need to go in one day a week, but so many people being able to work from home and be much more local, I think hopefully some of that will stay and that companies will change how they're making people travel. Yeah, and also I've learned that, you know, I can can just get Kerry to record her drums and I don't need to get my car and drive to a gig at all. I can just send him a video. (laughs) It's going to be it's what's going to happen now. You're just going to have me on like a screen at the back and I'll just not be allowed out. Just keep me in it. All, all we'll do is book gigs, Kerry, and uh-huh. we'll just get someone to show up and set up a projector mm-hmm. and just put it. Uh-huh, perfect. But, uh, yeah, so does anyone else have a drummer they want to celebrate? Because I've rambled. It's funny when you were talking about when then you look into them. And I always thought, I always thought it was kind of amazing that Velvet Underground's drummer was this little woman, very just nondescript looking, Mo Tucker just standing there, not glamorous or rock and rolly in any way, just doing a thing. And I always liked the way she drummed because she was making it up. You know, she wasn't really a drummer, but she she did it sort of differently and did it her own way, which I liked. Um, But then then I did look into her recently and I went, oh, she's slightly tea party-ish. And uh, yeah, it was a campaigner against Obama. (laughs) I was like, oh, I think I'll not (laughs) you then. Yeah, Yeah, so she sort of got mad. She had five kids and lives in Georgia or somewhere, you know, and has got terrible views on a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, one of my big sort of... uh, inspirations when when i was a teenager was janet weiss from um from sleater kinney um ah, yeah. i just always remember um i think the, the first time i heard sleater kinney was on a rock against bush albums there were like these rock against bush punk albums that um like fat mike from from no effects was involved in doing and um yeah there was a sleater kinney song on one of them called off with your head and uh the drum beat on that just that she plays just really grabbed me for some reason and it's just like i mean it's not like it's super um like unusual or anything but it's just not a standard drum beat and especially on sort of an album full of punk i guess where you just hear a lot of the same thing it stood out um and uh yeah i was obsessed that i needed to learn it and at that time was like pretty early and playing drums and i remember i 
I wasn't very good at learning by ear. Like I had to sit because I, I learned quite traditionally with written music. I had to sit and I like transcribed it to like figure out. I had to sit and transcribe it to like figure out what it was, and then learn to play it. Um, and yeah, so and yeah, you know, so, people did drumming like that. They do, yeah, they do. It's amazing. We had. Um, How does it look written down? Uh, so basically. So, so in in normally with written music, right? Each line is a different note. So for, with drums, it's just each line is a different drum, basically. But then, ha- yeah, no, I'm with you, Joe. <laughs> yeah, but then, we had we got. But you, you know, you could put oh, you know, there's that drum, but I could go. Like, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, then there's but then it follows the same rules with other written music of how you write rhythm, doesn't it? And then it. I'll, I'll find something to show you in a minute. I've never thought, I always thought that, I did always think that people would just go, we want this kind of beat, and then it's up to you. No, you can. To you can. do anything <laughs> fancy with it. No, you, you, know, you can you, you can write it down, and, and yeah, wow. it, it can be written. Um, That's when I thought it was weird when you were talking about the woman who was classically trained. See, I just kept seeing kettle drums and an orchestra. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, she sounds like she'll be shit. <laughs> <laughs> She's classical. She goes, I can do this bit. <laughs> On that. Because I didn't know that that was a thing. Brilliant. <laughs> the first uh, woman, apart from like Velvet Underground, um, that I saw was um, Sandy West. Very tragic Sandy West in The Runaways. Yeah. And I, I thought, I, w- I was blown away by her because of her sort of power. Like she was kind of beautiful, but tough looking. Yeah. And the way she plays drums was really hard. Like I'd never seen a woman playing like that. I found that incredible that she was like that. And then when I watched that film about them, I was like, oh, it's really sad. She was kind of tragic. And then she died quite young, 47, and um, was working in construction. And Yeah. But, you know, and they had an te- awful time. Terrible time. <laughs> um, they really with management. Yeah, yeah, just dreadful. Yeah. Um, but I thought, but when the first time I came across her, I was like, oh my God, what is this? She's amazing. You know. To lighten the mood, and I don't know how this works these days with copyright, actually, but I didn't know there were two bands called the Go Go's. There's the Go Go's that, that we know that the famous cool band. But then there was a British band called the Go Go's, and uh, they were from Newcastle, and they were for they were before the Go Go's that we you know that we know of. Um, so it was in nineteen sixty four that they were around, and they had a, a huge hit single with "I'm Gonna Spend My Christmas with a Dalek." Could you imagine just being famous for... Actually, you know what? I really wouldn't give a shit if it kept paying. But it wasn't one of those Christmas songs that keeps paying. Never heard that one. I was going to say, never heard of it. No, No, never heard of it. And they normally play every Christmas song, don't they? So, God. They're probably there every year going, oh, this year. (laughs) It's going to come back. Someone's going to talk about it on a podcast. This is it. We're going to cause the resurgence. Joe, seriously, thank you thank so much. You. Thank you. It's been so lovely to talk um, to you, and I'm really, I'm really glad I found your music, and I really enjoy it. And I'll be, and I'll be running to you tomorrow. Thank you so much for coming on the the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. So please do come on again. I think it's going to be something we stick with. So thank you for coming on, and uh, thank you for sharing lots of great, great music with us. And uh, this this will probably be out in about a week's time. And for those people listening, if you've got a story you want us to cover, normally quite badly, I think we've done a slightly better job. 
by actually doing a little bit of research. But if you've got a story you want us to cover, please do email us at rockpoprambles at gmail or find us on Twitter at Bug Eye Band or on Facebook as Bug Eye Music. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's it. So over and out. <laughs>